it's you know a powerful example of how small shifts by authoritative bodies, policy-making bodies, etc., can really drive change out there in the world. And I think for all of us who are interested in advancing this work, this becomes an opportunity to engage, if we're within an institution, engage our leadership in a conversation of how uh, this is going to be addressed in the institution, and for those of us who work with institutions, to uh, engage them in that conversation and, you know, across states and across regions. I'm Marisol Morales. I'm Andrew Seligson. And I'm Emily Shield, and this is the Compact Nation podcast. Hello, guys. So we are recording this week because last week um, my voice was non-existent. That's, that's how February went for me. Well, actually, it's not. It wasn't non-existent. I heard you on the phone, and what your voice actually sounded like is that you were suffering some horrible trauma. So I was very glad actually to hear that you just had a terrible cold. That was better than what your voice sounded like when I, Oh, did you, were you, when you heard me, I know I feel, I was going to email, but then I was like, well, this is something where it's easier for you to understand very quickly that I can't do the podcast. If you just hear my voice for five seconds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, but it, I, I, what it sounded like was that you had just seen like a nuclear missile land on Des Moines or something. That's what I thought I was learning. (laughs) I'm glad you're feeling better. Yes. So I'm I'm on the mend and it's March and I'm just deciding to just be happy that it's March. Just that's enough. Well, March is also women's history month. Shout out to all the women, uh, making moves and taking care of things. Yeah, we should. Oh, that would be good to talk about our favorite women in history as a part of this podcast at some point next time on the Car Pack Nation. Or currently. Or current women making history. History is made in the right present. Now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, great. Okay. So today on the Compact Nation podcast, we are going to talk a little bit about everyone's favorite part of higher education and that is accreditation (laughs) okay so we'll start with our segment we call and talk about what that word actually means accreditation so andrew i know you like to get all uh wonky about the definitions of things so what do you have for us around accreditation so in general I would say the word accreditation means review by an authoritative body to ensure quality or in some other way assure that uh, some mission is being advanced. And in the context of higher education, uh, these the authoritative bodies doing, there's actually a lot of them that do accreditation in higher education, but mostly for most institutions, there is a set of regional accreditation bodies. Uh, they're called things like the Higher Learning Commission in the Midwest, uh, uh, here we have the New England Association of Schools and Colleges in the Northeast, et cetera. So there's about six of them around the country, and they periodically review institutions of higher education to 
insure, and it's a little complicated to say what they're insuring because they're pretty specific that they're not, uh, it's not insuring quality uh, with any very specific standards, but essentially they're ensuring that institutions are articulating a mission and are in fact carrying out that mission in a way that's reasonable uh, in the context of larger expectations. And those regional accreditors are themselves accredited by the U.S. Department of Education and by something called the Council on Higher Education Accreditation. And all of this is following federal law, which basically says that unless you're an accredited institution, you can't get money from the federal government. You can't get grants. Your students wouldn't qualify for federal financial aid and loans. So accreditation Uh, kind of resting on the legislation through the Department of Education and then mostly these regional accreditors is is the way we ensure that institutions that are getting federal resources are pretty much doing what they say. It's worth mentioning that in addition to the regional accreditors, there's a whole bunch of accrediting bodies that accredit uh, either specialized programs or uh, institutions that are not geographically restricted. So most of the for-profit institutions that are accredited, it's through national accreditation bodies that are different from the regional accreditors. Mostly the regional accreditors are accrediting publics and nonprofits. So I Everybody. think the question then is, why why care? So if I if my focus is on higher education, civic and community engagement and the public purpose of higher education, what does accreditation have to do with me and why should I care about that in regards to my institution or, or other institutions? I think, I mean, there's a couple of reasons I think it's something we ought to be attentive to. One is that whatever it is the regional accreditors say institutions need to demonstrate, um, institutions really need to demonstrate those things. And so uh, what we think a quality education is, what we think a a basic college degree should mean, I mean, I don't mean a basic college degree, but any college degree, just knowing that someone has one, what that should mean. Those things are really the only way we have to enforce those nationally is through the accreditation process. There are also, you know, state licensing kinds of um, processes, et cetera. But those obviously differ from place to place. So if if there is to be a national conception of what a college or university is really supposed to do and how they're supposed to show that they're doing it and uh, what a degree from one of those places is going to mean, the only vehicle we have for that is the accreditation process. And again, it's a funny thing about the United States, the way we do this, that the regional accreditors are themselves nonprofit organizations. They're not government entities. They are responsible responsible to the Department of Higher Education, the U.S. Department of Higher, uh, of Education, sorry. But, uh, but it, like many things in the U.S., rather than having a sort of clear national policy and a national government capacity to carry that out, we rely on this sort of patchwork quilt of accreditors who are nonprofits, et cetera, but it's still, it's our only vehicle for some kind of national consistency or clarity about what we expect out of a college or university. So I know I always hear from member campuses, like kind of the, oh, we're going through our accreditation this year, grumbling, you know, that, um, that that seems like a pretty onerous process. But I also know that some of the folks I've worked with have found ways to 
be engaged in that process in ways that are very useful. What does that process usually look like? And what are ideas for folks who, you know, maybe this isn't their job, but should they be trying to get involved? What might they be able to offer? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, different institutions certainly handle the process differently. There's, you know, the kind of basic structure is that the regional accreditors send out teams of people who have uh, are themselves, you know, uh, folks who work on campuses in diverse roles, come to the institution, look at a whole set of data, uh, evidence of practice, evidence of um, ways that institutions are seeking to measure learning outcomes in various areas, um, and on the one hand are reviewing to ensure that an institution is compliant with a set of basic criteria, you know, just the, the fundamental expectations, and those are very general and tend, um, I mean, frankly, not to be all that demanding, right? The idea is lots and lots of institutions are accredited. It's not a, a kind of excellence uh, process. It's just like a, hey, you're basically doing the job. The the other part of it, though, is that for most of the regional accreditors, uh, they now have a process where if you generally uh, are compliant and have shown that in the past that you're doing the basic things you should, rather than focusing on those required criteria, you have the opportunity instead to focus on building strength in a particular area and the vocabulary it differs across the accreditors in some places that's focused on building a, a QEP, a quality enhancement plan. Uh, Emily, you told me what the term is in the Midwest, and I already don't remember it. Yeah, with with HLC, it's a quality initiative proposal, and they've had a specific um, element, a special focus within that on civic engagement. So, you know, to connect to their guiding values, which include that every institution serves a public purpose. Um, they've had this special focus and have been featuring quality initiatives that promote civic learning and civic engagement and that kind of thing. So that's where I've seen it come up and really be something that can elevate this work on a campus and, and in some cases ties into the civic action planning process. Um, the University of Northern Iowa, one of our members here, has a, a QIP, a quality initiative proposal um, from that, were, that they started a couple of years ago that's really around enhancing service learning. And so they're working on things like designating courses and really um, building stronger community partnerships and, and working with us on an engaged faculty institute so that the, the service learning courses are really, you know, not just happening, but um, are really affirmed to be of high quality. And so that's a lot of what that one has focused on. And that's an example for me where I've seen it really, and again, be able to elevate and move this work forward because you've got that proposal where you're going to be accountable to another body and the leaders of the institution are going to be accountable to another body to kind of really um, look at and focus on this stuff. Yeah. And I think there are, you know, I'm familiar with uh, Elon University, where North Carolina Campus Compact is hosted. Uh, its quality enhancement plan for SACS, the Southern accreditor, is also focused on civic engagement. And as you said, it's an opportunity for an institution to be very specific about how they are articulating a set of outcomes they're seeking to pursue and, and actually doing that. And, and one of the things I would say about this is, you know, I think 
uh, accreditation has kind of like other things for better or for worse kinds of aspects. So the reason we talk as much as we do in American higher education about learning outcomes, which nobody talked about 25 years ago, is because the accreditors began to require them and articulating them, indicating how they're going to be measured, et cetera, the focus on assessment. All of this comes from accreditation processes. And I know a lot of people think that has not been a very positive direction for higher education and that a lot of the innovation and creativity that was characteristic of the sector has been swallowed up. I don't, I don't, you know, I think there's a lot to be said about that. But the, the main point is accreditors have a huge impact. And when they articulate an interest, for example, in uh, advancing civic engagement and the kinds of learning that comes out of it, uh, it can have a significant influence on institutions. And it does create an opportunity, I think, for people who have been building and leading that work on campuses to move that more to the center of the way an institution thinks about itself, because institutions do invest a significant amount in collecting and demonstrating evidence uh, related to accreditation processes, again, because they are high stakes. Most institutions will get reaccredited every time it comes around, but not doing so is, you know, it's essentially the death penalty for an institution. Mm-hmm. Marisol, is that something? Is it something you got a chance to be involved in at any of the institutions where you worked? Uh, well, at Laverne, before I left, they were getting ready for accreditation um, pieces, and the law school had, you know, sort of been under review uh, around accreditation. But I think it's, you know, an opportunity to pull people in from across campus and really focus on that self study, mm-hmm. demonstrate the the work that you're doing. Um, I know at Laverne um, from the they're going through accreditation now, but previously like uh, WASC, which is um, the one for the Western region, um, you know, really helped move the university in a direction of hiring a chief diversity officer and making that uh, an area of focus, particularly with the uh, mm-hmm. diverse uh, student body that, that it has. And I think as sort of civic engagement becomes part of what the accreditors are talking about, that it gives us an opportunity to build off of work that we've already been doing in the field in terms of like the civic action plans or the Carnegie classification, right? Those are all things that I think will help and make it easier uh, for institutions who are um, going through accreditation with this being, you know, the new norm uh, to to be able to demonstrate um, that work better. Um, I would say the other piece um, also is that, um, you know, I think it helps also enhance the work that we're doing as Campus Compact to, for those institutions who don't feel like um, either, you know, they're ready or equipped to be able to, to pull this information um, to help them think about the ways in which um, they can do that and building the capacity within their own institutions. So, I mean, I think it's a win. We saw great interest at our national conference um, around this and the conversations with the accrediting bodies that we did have there. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's, it's exciting, um, especially for our institutions who have put so much time and effort into this already. I think it's a recognition of the work that is happening in higher ed. Yeah. And I know I've also had a quite a few conversations with um, administrators in professional schools as well, you know, so where there's accreditation around pharmacy or medical fields or that kind of thing. And a lot of increased um, interest in when, you know, when students are having community experiences 
what are those reflection components and how do, how do those demonstrate the learning outcomes and just, you know, seems to be more scrutiny around that piece, which we know from the, all the research we've been a part of in this field that that is critical. And so I think that emphasis on not just what the experience is, but how is the learning of that experience um, enhanced, documented, deepened uh, through really stru- well-structured reflection. Uh, that seems to be something that I'm at least seeing more and more professional schools focused on. So from here, I think we want to move into talking about um, what, what comes next? What, what might the future of this look like? And what should folks in different leadership roles on campus be thinking about in terms of civic engagement? So I know I mentioned that um, the Higher Learning Commission here in the Midwest had that special focus on civic engagement with the quality um, initiative proposals. But Andrew, can you talk a little bit about what we know is kind of on the horizon um, with accreditation and its emphasis on civic and community engagement? Yeah, last week, the board of the Higher Learning Commission met to consider revisions to their core criteria. So as we mentioned, they're the basic criteria that every institution has to meet. And then there's this opportunity to build uh, quality enhancement or quality improvement plans. Uh, These were changes that the Higher Learning Commission was considering to the core criteria, meaning changing what every institution they accredit is expected to do. And, you know, again, for the HLC, that's a thousand institutions in a huge region of the country that is much broader than the actual Midwest. It goes from West Virginia to Wyoming. Um, So a lot of institutions. Um, And I'm just going to read like a couple uh, bits of new language that is now part of these core criteria. Um, So in one section, it says the institution provides opportunities for civic engagement in a diverse multicultural society and globally connected world as appropriate within its mission for the constituencies it serves. Uh, The institution encourage it encourages learning or co-curricular activities that prepare students for informed citizenship and workplace success. The institution's processes and activities demonstrate inclusive and equitable treatment of diverse populations. The institution fosters a climate of respect among all students, faculty, staff, and administra- administrators from a range of diverse backgrounds. And uh, there's more. But but that indicates, you know, a new direction that we really haven't seen from uh, from other regional accreditors, both naming civic engagement as a piece of what the institution needs to be doing and providing for its students, as well as uh, attention there and in other places in the criteria to diversity, um, to inclusion. Um, and again, with all these things like reasonable people could imagine different language they might prefer, et cetera. This went through a, a you know, a multi-stage process of proposed revisions, public comment, feedback, uh, you know, revising from those revisions, et cetera, and, and working toward this. From my perspective, it's a, a big step forward. And one of the things it does is puts on the table for this group of a thousand institutions, the question of how in future accreditation rounds, uh, reaccreditation rounds, they will demonstrate that they are in fact doing this, that they are, you know, creating opportunities for civic engagement in a diverse multicultural society, et cetera. These are now um, expected and they'll need to articulate what the evidence will be in the future, how they will provide the opportunities, and then how they will gather the evidence to show that this is really happening through their institutions. 
So again, I think it's, you know, and I know other regional accreditors are talking and thinking about um, moving in this direction. Um, but I think it's, it's, you know, a powerful example of how uh, small shifts by authoritative bodies, policymaking bodies, et cetera, can um, really drive change uh, out there in the world. And I think for all of us who are interested in advancing this work, this becomes an opportunity to engage, if we're within an institution, engage our leadership in a conversation of how uh, this is going to be addressed in the institution. And for those of us who work with institutions to uh, engage them in that conversation and, you know, across states and across regions. Um, and again, hopefully the other regional accreditors will see some things happening that they would like to foster as well in their regions. So what are some ways that, um, you know, we can support members in thinking about this or that um, members could be thinking about kind of taking advantage of different ways of having increased accountability and really looking at the that, you know, civic engagement work? I mean... I think it's important that we um, develop resources um, that are specific to either the state um, bodies that uh, institutions are reporting to on this because there's some efforts at the state level around this uh, specific either to community colleges or all uh, colleges and universities and states, um, as well as the regional accrediting bodies. So the more that we can work with those um, regional uh, bodies or the um, state bodies who are looking at these pieces to develop support systems, either trainings or ways to help uh, institutions think about it. I think we do a service to our members in, in that way to get them you know, ready and, and feel supported in doing that. So it's not an overwhelming task or another thing for them to do, but something that is part of the ethos of their institution. And they build that into um, their process. I think you know, accrediting, uh, going through the accreditation process, um, can be scary for some institutions um, or just a lot of work because you're pulling together, you know, documents and examples. Um, and so the more support that I think we can provide um, them, um, the more value I feel that they'll, they'll see in, in continuing to do this work. One of the things we've been working on uh, at Campus Compact that I think will be helpful to institutions in the context of these uh, accreditation standards um, is a digital platform that we will be piloting uh, in the next few months that is intended to help institutions capture the the learning that is coming out of the civic engagement activities that their students are participating in. Um, and again, part of the idea behind that is to put institutions in a position to uh, to capture and report that. Some of it would be in order to provide value for the students and being able to demonstrate what they have done individually, but some of it also would be at the level of the institution to be able to, um, in, in ways that are understandable to others, uh, communicate what's happening with your student population in terms of the kinds of things that they're seeking to learn and, and, and really are learning in the, the context of civic and community engagement. Um, and again, I think there's opportunities that that will help inform all of us at statewide levels and more broadly um, and, and move forward the broader conversation about how we can deepen this kind of learning. I think there are a lot of uh, constituencies, I think especially public officials, uh, who would actually be interested to know that this is happening and I think frequently are not aware. So, you know, the imposition of a requirement sometimes um, 
is an opportunity to to demonstrate things you've already been doing, which I think is true for many, certainly many of our member institutions, but they may not have been kind of rolling it up and presenting it because nobody's been asking for it in those terms. And, you know, I would say I think we're seeing something similar with the states where the public higher education authorities have created expected civic learning outcomes. So we've seen in Massachusetts and in Maryland and Virginia uh, those kinds of expectations. And I know those states, the public institutions have been engaged in a really active dialogue about both how to continuously improve the work they're doing with students and also how to capture it and communicate it so that, you know, the relevant authorities know about it, but also that others who might care to know that their public institutions are doing this work can see it. Yeah, and I know, again, with the example of University of Northern Iowa, and I know others, the Civic Action Plan has really been a good place to bring all those elements together to talk about things relevant to accreditation, but also the university's strategic plan and really articulate a vision for how each of those pieces align um, for what the institution's, you know, civic and community engagement goals and um, things like that really are. And so I've seen a lot of success there, and that's certainly something we can support along with thinking about, you know, in terms of individual programs and um, processes and that kind of thing, what the learning outcomes might be and how those can be successfully documented and excited for the the system you just mentioned, Andrew, um, since I get a lot of questions about that and what systems might work for people to be able to do that kind of tracking. Yeah, pretty soon that system is actually going to have a name, but but it, but it doesn't yet. Uh, one other thing I'll mention is that uh, Jeff Rosen, who's a vice president at uh, the Higher Learning Commission, um, just indicated to me that if we were going to be talking about this on the podcast and people were interested in learning more, they could reach out directly to him. Uh, his email is jrosen at hlcommission.org, jrosen at hlcommission.org. And he he authorized me to say that on the podcast. Um, He'd like to hear from people. These go into effect formally September 2020. Uh, So institutions have some time to prepare. But, um, you know, as many uh, people who seek the presidency in the United States will tell us, 2020 is just around the corner. Uh, So it's a good time to, again, start thinking about the resources, as Emily was just saying, that through the civic action planning work or others that you can find to help you get started on this. And again, I think it's just a terrific opportunity to jumpstart conversations on campuses about whether these kinds of opportunities for civic learning, for learning in the context of equity and diversity uh, are are really happening. And if not, what more needs to be done? I, I guess the one last thing I would say is, you know, it for me, a lot of this fits in the framework of this is not always about needing new resources to do things. It's about how you do the things that you always have been doing. You've been teaching students. Have you been teaching them in a way that is cognizant of their public responsibilities of the, you know, preparing them for uh, life in a complex and diverse world to be the kinds of citizens who advance a set of inclusive values, uh, et cetera. So I think there are real opportunities for rethinking things that institutions are already pouring most of their resources into to ensure that they're advancing public values. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and, and again, thinking about the, the quality piece, um, and it, so it's not necessarily that you need to provide students with more community experiences or do more things towards your public purpose, but are you doing them at a high level of quality? Can you demonstrate that? Like, that is a lot of what um, I think there needs to be more emphasis on, and that can really help in terms of thinking about streamlining and improving what's happening um, and not always trying to add just layer more on top of it necessarily. You know, I agree with the piece around it's not, you know, just sort of adding to the, the quantity piece, but the quality and part of that quality piece for me is the idea of responsibility, right? Ethical responsibility to, to the community. And so as institutions are thinking about this in regards to um, accreditation, I think one of the reflective questions that has to be part of this is sort of the the ethics of engagement um, with with the community and and the ways um, you know I, I'm not sure how the accreditation piece would work with this but I know pieces around like our civic action plan and Carnegie uh, had some had the opportunity for community voice and so that if institutions are doing this the way they're demonstrating that piece um, as well I think would be important Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And to preview a future episode, we're just wrapping up an Iowa study of community organization perceptions of partnering with higher education, and we'll be sharing the results of that here on the podcast in the coming weeks. Um so we also are one of the reasons it's a relatively short episode. Do you guys want to just preview some of the conferences you're headed to and how we're going to bring those in-person events to our listeners? So Andrew and I will be um, heading over to San Diego for the Continuums of Service Conference, which is sponsored um, by the Western Region. And we'll be recording the keynote, which will be given by uh, Rhonda McGee. She's a professor of law, mindfulness, and social justice teacher and advocate at the University of San Francisco. So we're excited about her keynote and then being able to bring her in to talk a little bit more um, with us about mindfulness and, and community engagement. So in the uh, continuing traveling roadshow that is Campus Compact, we will be heading from the West Coast back to the East Coast for the Eastern Region Campus Compact meeting in a couple of weeks. Uh, that will be in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, we will hear from... From my perspective, the most important political mind in America now, Danielle Allen, uh, who's on the faculty at Harvard University, and she writes a column for The Washington Post. Um, And so I'm incredibly uh, excited to hear her talk. There'll be a panel on civic engagement and social innovation um, and a bunch of other good stuff uh, happening as well. So uh, looking forward to that meeting and to bringing some content from there to the podcast. Awesome. So some exciting episodes coming your way in coming weeks. I think we're going to end today with a little pop culture corner because I don't think we've done that in a little while. I'm going to go first because mine is not a great note to end on for some. Um, My pop culture corner is around the collective mourning of women of my generation on the passing of... um, 
sorry, Luke Perry, who played Dylan McKay on 90210. Now, Andrew's smiling, and I will have you know this is not a laughing matter. <laughs> I, am not, is... I want to make clear I'm not smiling about the death of a human being. That is not why I'm smiling. I was smiling because Emily happened to pause in a way that might have made it seem to a listener that she was like choked up and unable to continue. I don't think that was true, but it just I just thought that impression. It is true. No, seriously, there's a whole a whole bunch of people for whom this was our first our first crush. Our first, you know, feelings toward uh, a bad boy on television. And um, it is honestly pretty sad, you know, that he's gone at 52. But, yeah, you know, just seeing a lot on social media of um, the sort of collective angst happening around this right now. Uh, So I thought I would share just simply R.I.P. Luke Perry. Thank you for the um, education you brought to me in my youth. I mean, I, I think for, for <laughs> sorry about Luke Perry. Um, and <laughs> I think for me, um, just my pop culture corner is just around um, the fierce women that we're seeing in Congress right now. I'm very excited about um, the ways in which uh you know, we're seeing women's participation in in politics increase. And in Chicago, um, we have a runoff with two African-American women uh, who will be the future mayor of the city of Chicago. So I'm really excited about that and increase a number of women in um, who ran for city council. So for me, it's connected to Women's History Month and uh, women's participation in the political process. Very cool. It is great to see. Well, I wouldn't say the hearings happening in Congress are great to see uh, for our country, but the women in those hearings are standing out in terms of their preparedness and willingness to ask tough questions. And it certainly is, um, is a good moment in terms of seeing what can happen when you have women in those positions to ask questions and to be prepared. Right. Well, and have sort of what the country looks like be uh, exemplified and what yep. the Congress looks like and Congress, you know, doing what they're meant to do, which is oversight. So my pop culture corner is um, it's not a fun one. So I'm just previewing that. Um, I heard an interview with Brian Stevenson, who people may be familiar with. He's the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative. Um, he's been uh, a uh, essentially, I mean, he calls himself a death row lawyer um, and has argued a number of cases before the Supreme Court. Uh, for example, the case in which the court found that uh, it was unconstitutional to sentence children to life imprisonment without possibility of parole. Brian Stevenson argued that case. And uh, he's the author of a book called Just Mercy, which is now being made into a movie starring Michael B. Jordan. But the thing that I was going to talk about is that I learned and I haven't visited this yet, so I'm eager to do so, that he uh, his organization, Equal Justice Initiative, recently opened a uh, a memorial to lynching in the United States, the National Memorial for Peace and Justice uh, in Montgomery, Alabama, on the site of a or or adjacent to a museum uh, that they also uh, launched to commemorate 
um, or not to commemorate, but to educate, et cetera, on the history from enslavement through mass incarceration. And um, he talked about, Stevenson talked about the having visited um, the various kinds of the apartheid museum and other kinds of memorials in South Africa and the Holocaust museum uh, memorial in Berlin. Um, And one of the things he said that just really struck me was that, you know, we talk about uh, truth and reconciliation processes. And I think he might have been quoting Desmond Tutu about this, but he basically said there ha- those have to be in the right order. There has to be truth before there's reconciliation. Um, and I just thought in this moment now where we can all see the profound need for reconciliation, part of that has to be actually documenting and coming to terms with the actual history of the enforcement of white supremacy through violence. Lynching was a key tool. Uh, 4,400 people killed uh, through lynchings. Um, and uh, so, you know, I I'm I would like to get down and visit it, but I was just uh, very interested having seen some of those sites in other countries. Like I've been to a lot of the places in South Africa uh, that inspired this and they're incredibly powerful. Uh, and uh, yeah, so just wanted to share the existence of that and uh, hope sometime to be able to report on a visit there. Awesome. Yeah. Same here. And uh, I've seen some of the pictures and there's even, you know, video online of what, you know, the, the plants and what it, what it looks like and that kind of thing. And it's really incredible, incredible design. And again, that'll be on my bucket list as well. All right. Anything else for today, guys? We're wrapping it up. I just want to say that running from accreditation through uh, discussions of horrible violence perpetrated over many years. We've kept it light today, uplifting. So I hope hope people... Yeah, probably have uh, lots of new listeners. No one turned it off or anything. Exactly. Lots yeah. of people are still listening to us right now. Yeah. So thank yeah. you for hanging well, in. So for, so for those of you who are still with us and made it through the episode, thank you. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe on iTunes or whatever platform you listen. Give us a review. That always helps in terms of helping us find new listeners. Um, you can always interact with us. There are a few different ways. If you have thoughts or ideas for future episodes or questions, we can be found at on email at podcast at compact.org. You can also find us on social media if you use hashtag compact nation pod. And like we said, we will be back in the coming weeks with some roadshow episodes. So stay tuned to that. And hopefully we'll see some of you at our upcoming regional conferences. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Until next time. Bye-bye. Compact Nation podcast comes to you from Campus Compact's national headquarters in Boston, Massachusetts. Our hosts are Marisol Morales, Emily Shields, and me, Andrew Seligson. Our producer is Molly Leeper. Music is by Andrew Savage. As always, you can find us online at compact.org slash podcast or on social media at hashtag compactnationpod. Thanks for listening. And remember, until you're satisfied that the world is good enough, keep doing something.